Well, good morning, South. Chris, how are you doing this morning? All right, better than 9.30. There's only like three people awake there, so at least we got a few more here. We're so glad that you guys are here today. I'm excited to be here. I want to welcome my LaGrange campus and all those watching online with us. We're in the middle of our summer series called Two Tickets to Paradise. And you know, the interesting thing about getting two tickets is who do you give the other ticket to? Now, it depends on the event. Friday night, my wife went to a Martina McBride concert in LaGrange. Uh, she went with a bunch of friends because I am allergic to country music. <clears throat> I, just, I just can't do it. And so, um, but to paradise, two tickets to paradise, who would you want to take with you to paradise? And maybe a more important question for us this morning is, have you ever invited anyone to paradise? But that's what this series is all about, is about who are the people in our lives we can invite to Christ. Speaking of doing things with other people, um, how many of you, when you were kids, liked to ride bikes? Anybody? Okay, okay. There's some people in here like some, but some of you are like, I still like riding bikes. What are you talking about? Uh, but some of us liked it. I, I loved riding bikes as a kid. And um, we would ride our bikes everywhere. We lived in a suburb outside Detroit, Michigan, and we would get, all the neighborhood kids would get together and we would ride our bikes and it looked like a miniature motorcycle gang. Um, but bikes back then were a lot different than they look now. Um, it, it, I had a banana seat bike. If anybody had a banana seat bike, uh, here's a picture of me on my eighth birthday, actually with my brand new wheels. Um, yeah, see those nice handlebars and everything? That was, those were the bikes back then. And I was cool. I know it, I was just, just to be real. But my favorite time to ride my bike was right after it rained. We would aim for every puddle and see who could make the biggest splash. And um, it was always something that was kind of a competition. You'd be running into each other, trying to get in those puddles and make splashes, splash each other. But I remember one time in particular, we were riding along and I saw off on the side of the road, off in the grass, there was this rut and it looked like there was a lot of water in it. And I wanted to be the first one to get into it because the more water, the more of a splash. And so I assumed that this car had gone off the road and gotten back on. And so it was a gradual slope into the rut and then a gradual slope back out of the rut. Well, apparently the car had actually gotten stuck. So I go flying into this rut, water's going everywhere. And I get near the end of it. And instead of it being a gradual way out, there's kind of a stop. And my front tire hits that stop and I go flying through those ape hanger handlebars. I hit the ground, go tumbling. I got cuts and bruises, soaking wet. And then you can hear the laughter of all the people who are with you. Um, when you're eight and nine years old, you don't stop and be like, hey, are you okay? Can I get you anything? No, they just point and laugh. And um, I remember that time very vividly. And I remember more the ride home. I was wet. I was dirty. I was cut up and bruised. And if you ever rode a bike with those big handlebars, you know about lever arms and torque. The farther away something is, the easier it is to move. Well, yeah, when I hit, those handlebars went down. They loosened and fell down. So now I'm riding the bike back with loose handlebars. You know, it's kind of like one of those numbers. It feels like you're on a row machine. And, and that's how I got home. And it was a very humiliating time. And, and I suffered through that. And, you know, oftentimes in life, when we look back on stories of suffering, we can laugh a bit. It, you know, it was not fun at that time. But now that we're through it, it's okay to laugh at it. But there's many other times in our life when we look back on suffering that there's a whole lot more pain and a whole lot more anguish that comes to our mind. You know, suffering is defined as undergoing pain, distress, or hardship. And suffering can happen to us through external circumstances or it can happen to us by choices that we make. 
But either way, suffering is not a good place to be. And if you're like me, there are two ways that we can respond to personal suffering. The first is we can cry out against God. If you are a just and loving God, then how can you let this be happening to me? The second option we have when it comes to suffering is that we can acknowledge that we're sinners. We don't deserve anything. And we can cry out to God for mercy and to help us. Well, I have some good news for you today. We're not the first people who will ever have to deal with suffering. Uh, Today, I want to spend some time with you in the book of Luke as he shares the story of three men who suffered as well. Uh, We're going to call them the good, the bad, and the ugly. Now, the good, the bad, and the ugly is one of the best Westerners that's ever made. If you've not seen it, you know what your afternoon homework assignment is. Go watch The Good, the Bad, and the Ugly. It's a great movie starring Clint Eastwood. It came out in 1966. And as great as Clint Eastwood was in that movie, that's why the movie is not famous. It's the music. There's a, I, I would whistle it, but the mic would mess it up and it'd sound just like static. But the music to The Good, the Bad, and the Ugly is legendary. It is still used today in movies. People use it. And, and that's what we want to look at today. We're going to look about 2,000 years ago, about three men. One of them was good, one of them was bad, and the other was ugly. So if you will, take your Bibles. Let's turn to Luke 23. We'll start at verse 32. He said, two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they cast lots to divide his garments, and the people stood by watching. But the ruler scoffed at him, saying, He saved others, let him save himself, if he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine, and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There also was an inscription over him, This is the king of the Jews." One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him saying, are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him saying, do you not fear God since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly for we are receiving the due rewards of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, truly, I say to you today, you will be with me in paradise. Now, let me give you a little background here. These two criminals that hung next to Jesus, many people believe that they were actually bandits, uh, very similar to the bandits we read about in the story of the Good Samaritan. If you recall, the road from Jerusalem to Jericho was 17 miles long, and it was a very steep road down with mountain cliffs on both sides. And so these bandits would, would hide in these cliffs, and they would wait for a defenseless traveler to come by. And when they would come by, they would attack them, steal their possessions, and usually leave them for dead. And these were the type of men who were hanging next to Jesus. It's also believed that these two men were actually companions of Barabbas. If you recall earlier in the story, when we were reading the crucifixion of Christ, that when they're bringing him to trial, Pilate brings out Barabbas, a known criminal who people hated, and says, in Jesus, he goes, I'm going to set one free, you pick. And the people said, free Barabbas, crucified Jesus. And so it's believed that these two men were all been killed with Barabbas because they were all companions. But Jesus took his place. And so as we look at this, we need to understand that these men, 
these two criminals are similar in a couple ways. One is they're both going through crucifixion right now. They're both going through this pain of crucifixion. Second, they're both guilty of a crime. Uh, they were bandits, and uh, we even see in verse 41, it says we're receiving the due reward of our deeds. Both see Jesus, the sign above his head that says King of the Jews. Both of them would have heard Jesus say, Father, forgive them. They weren't that far apart from where he, he hung. And both of these criminals wanted desperately to be saved from death. Crucifixion is one of the most agonizing ways you can die. And not only is it an agonizing way to die, but while you were up there, people tortured, people beat you. They, they do it was awful, awful experiences. So they would have given anything to be off of that cross. And most of us have all these things in common with these two criminals. You see, there has been, is, or will be suffering in your life. You will know that Christ was on the cross and have heard him claim kingship and his gracious offer of forgiveness. All of us want to be saved from death in one way or another. We would love not to think we'd have to go through that. But then we divide ways between these two criminals. And we're going to see by looking at these two criminals, the two ways that we deal with suffering. So let's take a look first at the ugly. This first criminal says, are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. What a picture of a destitute worldly man. It's a matter of total indifference of why he is suffering, but he wants to be freed from it. To him, right and wrong, praise, blame, good, bad, they're, they're of no interest. His one objective is to save himself, to get off of that cross. He might even believe that Jesus is the Messiah, that he's the king of the Jews. But that would only be a matter of convenience for him. Hey, since you're this guy, you can do all this, get me off too. You see, he'll take anybody as king who can get him off of that cross to keep him from his suffering. And that's the way that people today relate to God when it comes to suffering. Uh, suffering, you see, interrupts our private worldly goals and pleasures. We're going along at a great pace. Something happens in our life. We begin to suffer and it interrupts our lives. So when everything else fails, oh, we could try God. I'm sure maybe this God could help. Can't hurt to try, right? Well, this is carjack theology. You see, a carjack is something you keep in your trunk usually. Maybe it's under the seat. And we don't ever pay much attention to it. Sometimes we know it's there. Sometimes we don't because when we have a flat tire in our life, that little bit of suffering that comes in, most of us have to go find where the jack is. Once we find it, we pull it out. We use it for one purpose and one purpose only to help us out of our tight situation. And then we throw it back in the trunk or under the seat, maybe use it some other day if it happens again. You see, that's the type of theology that many people have. See, we love the part where the Bible says Jesus is our savior. But when it follows with and Lord and we're to obey him, yeah, we're not as favorite of that part. That part is like, yeah, I don't know about all that. I like the savior the whole Lord thing, I'm not so sure about. You see, this criminal had no spirit of brokenness or guilt or penitence or humility. He did not see Jesus as a king to be followed, only as a way that he could escape from the cross. It never entered his mind that he should be sorry about what he had done, that he should ask for forgiveness. He only possessed what the Bible calls worldly sorrow. 
you look in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10, for godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas godly grief produces death. You see, he was only sorry that he had been caught. He was ugly. The second criminal, on the other hand, was bad. This criminal admitted that what he had done was wrong. We see again, verse 41, we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. And not only did he admit to being wrong and guilty, he accepted the punishment that he deserved. He says, we are under the sentence of condemnation justly. He had no desire to save face anymore. He, he was beyond that. He had no more will to assert himself and his innocence. He was here on the cross laid open before the God he feared. And there was no way for him to hide his guilt. You see, he actually challenged his friend. He said, he rebuked him saying, do you not fear God? You see, as a criminal, this man, he still feared who God was. And even though both these men were criminals, they would have known who Jesus was. Let's face it, everyone in Jerusalem at that time had heard about Jesus and knew who Jesus was. That's the reason the Pharisees hated him so much. He was more popular than they were. He was more liked than they were. Everybody knew Jesus. All the more reason they wanted him gone and they wanted him killed. These criminals would have known that. And because of that, the second criminal said, this man has done nothing wrong. He declared Jesus' righteousness as he looked next to him on the cross. You see, it didn't make any difference to that first criminal if Jesus was right or wrong. If Jesus could get him off the cross, that works for me. But for the second criminal, what mattered to him was the truth. He said, this man is good. This man's done nothing wrong. This man speaks only truth. This man is worthy of our faith and our allegiance. But the second criminal goes a step further than that and acknowledges that indeed Jesus is king. If you look with the words you use, remember me when you come into your kingdom. You see, even though he is suffering now, Jesus has the mark of a king. And for those who have eyes to see, he has a power here on the cross that's being displayed. A power of love that makes him king over all those who are tormenting him. And this second criminal on the cross believes. And that statement he has to Jesus is bursting with faith. He has more faith that day than anyone else watching that scene unfold. And I would dare say that he has more faith than anyone else in the Bible. I want you to think about that just for a moment. Most people who have faith in the Bible have seen God do something huge, miraculous, and they follow him because of his mighty acts. I mean, just think about in the New Testament, those who walked with Jesus, they saw him heal lepers. They saw him give sight to the blind, made the lame walk. Some of them even saw him raise someone from the dead. Yeah, I'm gonna follow that guy. He can raise you from the dead, I'll follow him. In the Old Testament, People heard Jesus talk to them. He walked alongside Adam and Eve in the garden. He gave Abraham a vision to move away. He speaks in a whisper or out of a burning bush directly to you. Yeah, I can follow that God who speaks to me and talks to me, lets me know his plans. But this man is hanging next to Jesus on a cross. He looks over 
that Jesus, who according to Isaiah 52, was already beaten beyond recognition as a person. And he looks at that and he says, that's my God. That's my king. That's my savior. As he lays there in defeat, about to die, not in his glory, but at his worst, this man looks at Jesus and says, that's what I want. Remember me when you come in to your kingdom. Timothy Keller says, you don't really know Jesus is all you need until Jesus is all that you have. And that criminal, realizing whose presence he was in, only asked the king of the universe to remember him. Didn't ask him to save him. He just said, just Jesus, when you come into your kingdom, please remember me. He was the bad. You see, the bad and the ugly were both suffering, both bearing the burden of choices they had committed. Now, we'll get to the good in just a few moments, but I want to take you back to those three crosses. Three men hung on those crosses bearing burdens. Two for sins they committed. One for the sins I committed. For the sins that all of you in this room have committed. And so how does that burden bearing apply to us today? How does what Jesus did on the cross apply to us today? Well, I think it's important that we understand that there's two types of burdens in the Bible and there's two types of bearing in the Bible. The first type of burden is a load that is too heavy or difficult for one person to carry alone. We see in Galatians 6, 1 through 2, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. You see, at some point in our own life, we'll experience trials and pains that induce suffering. And it's going to be too much for us to handle on our own. When we see someone in that situation as Christians, as the children of God, it's our job to step up, to step in and help those people. You see, the prevailing thought in modern times, especially many first world countries, is that their problem is not my responsibility. They got themselves into this mess. They can get themselves out of it. But that very first verse starts with brothers. You see, God is calling us a family. And families love unconditionally, which means when you see someone in need, you step in and you help them in their need. This ideal of of burden bearing means to lift up or take off and sometimes even carry away. Two weeks ago at our LaGrange campus, we were notified about a family in our community lost everything in a fire. Mom, dad, two kids, everything gone. Mike and I talked for a little bit about it and uh, we felt that we needed to step up and to step in. And all we did was put a simple post on our LaGrange Facebook page that said, hey, there's a family in our community that lost everything in a fire. One of their biggest needs is clothes and shoes. Gave the sizes. And for the last two weeks, people have been pouring into our church, bringing clothes, shoes, and all kinds of items to reach out and help this family through their need. You see this type of burden when you can help someone else out. That's this first type of burden we're talking about here. And it's something that, that as Christians, when we see people in this world with all this evils who are affected by that hurt, that we can step up and say, hey, God is love and let me show you that love by how I can reach out and help you. 
That's what this first burden refers to. The second type of burden in the Bible is extremely different. The second, the Greek word used for this type actually means a sack or backpack a soldier carried on a daily basis. Galatians 6, 4 through 5. But let each one test his own work, and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor, for each will have to bear his own load. You see, these are the burdens that Christ gives us to help us grow stronger. These are burdens as Christians that we're not to take away from someone, but to walk alongside them as they go through it. We are to encourage them and bear with them in these situations. An example of this would be someone who makes poor financial decisions and finds themselves in debt. Now, I'm not talking about debt because of medical bills or a loss of a job or or something else. I'm talking about I'm spending more money than I make and I do it over and over again. Now, under the first burden, we would just go write a check and pay their debt off. But remember, this type of burden is to help the person grow, to make them stronger. And if we were just to write a check to get rid of their debt, we would just be enabling that person to go and sin again, to go be foolish again. Instead, this type of burden reminds us that this God wants to do something in their life. And so we walk alongside of them. We begin to talk to them about what it means to budget. We begin showing them how they can trust God with their finances, to tithe and rely on Him for provision. We might even, as a sign of relief, take them out to dinner or to a movie to celebrate the better choices they've been making, but to help them walk through, to help them grow and understand, hey, God is doing this to be part of your testimony, and I don't want to take that away from you. Instead, I'm going to walk with you. Now, as we do that, it brings about the two types of bearing mentioned in the Bible. And that first type of bearing is patience. One of the best definitions I've heard of patience is this, to wait hopefully with expectation. So as we bear this burden, as we wait patiently, we're hoping that they'll come to their senses. Ephesians 4, 2, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. You see, patience is a fruit of the Spirit. And because it's a great fruit of the Spirit, it's a wonderful trait to have, but it can be difficult to extend towards people sometimes. And so we need God's help. And that's okay. He'll step in and he'll help us be patient. But the other type of burden bearing is what we call long suffering. And long suffering has, carries with it elements of extended time and pain. And because of those two factors, it's hard to love somebody with long suffering. Because it's very hard for us to come up with that time. And oftentimes we're not ready to help take on someone else's pain and to walk with them through those painful times. However, long-suffering continues after patience runs out. Angie and I will be married for 18 years this July. I think marriage is the perfect picture of long-suffering because Lord knows she has suffered a long time being married to me. But long-suffering is not negative. Long-suffering is a symbol of a couple's ability to withstand hardships and to cling closer to each other and to God through the darkest times, but also to celebrate the achievements and be joyous together as well. Long suffering is in for the long haul. We see the example of this in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, the love chapter. It says, love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. 
It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices in the truth. And then here in verse 7, you really get to the long-suffering piece. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. Allow me to kind of illustrate the difference between patience and long-suffering with our friends in the animal kingdom. The praying mantis has been superbly engineered for speed and veracity and is known as a voracious appetite for other insects. It's an excellent assassin of bugs. As autumn approaches, the male praying mantis begins to feel frisky each year. But time is not on his side. Most male mantises do not make it through the winter, and so he has very little time to find a partner and mate. But this is also his best chance because a well-fed female is a well-mannered female. As the mating process begins, the female waits patiently. This process can take several hours, and she just hangs in there. But right before it ends, she does something very unique. She turns and looks at him lovingly, and then rips his head off. Oh, there's more. She then consumes him, eats him completely up. You see, she needs the extra nourishment and energy to lay eggs, around 200 of them, and then just sustain herself through the winter as she watches over those eggs. I have heard about getting your head bitten off. I have heard about being chewed out. I am thankful to God I am not a male praying mantis. That is not the way to go. So we need long suffering in our lives not patience. And this is when we get to the last character in our story, the good. You see, Jesus's love and everything we know about love is made complete in him. And he displayed that even to the very end on the cross. When that second criminal asked Jesus to remember him, Jesus replied, today you will be with me in paradise. That's almost too good. You're going through suffering But almost immediately, I'm going to take you out of that suffering and you will be with me in paradise. So so what is this paradise? Well, paradise is being in the presence of God. Paradise is being with him. And we get a small taste of that here on earth. As the Holy Spirit comes into our life and the Holy Spirit moves in us, we get a taste of his glory and what, what God has to offer. But when our life is over, and we've breathed our last and are with our Heavenly Father, we will be in paradise. We will be with Him forever. So that begs the question, then why is there suffering? Why do we have to put up with suffering if you can take us and put us in paradise? Now, I think there's a few basic thoughts here that we need to really understand. The first is that suffering reminds us that this world can never fully satisfy our desires. You see, suffering exposes temporal pleasures for what they really are counterfeits disguised as treasure. The grace of suffering pushes us to seek something greater than the world and lifts our eyes to the eternal hope of storing up treasures in heaven. We can then endure knowing that one day we'll fully experience the presence of Christ without sin or pulling the world. C.S. Lewis says, pain insists upon being attended to. God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks in our conscience, but shouts in our pangs. It is his megaphone to rouse the deaf world, to point people back to him. The second reason I think there's suffering is that suffering that comes as a result of taking up our cross to follow him strengthens us by helping us experience a greater oneness with Christ. You see, God ordains every single moment of our lives. 
have a news flash for you. There are no accidents. As Leroy Jethro Gibbs says, there are no coincidences. God is sovereign. God does it all. Nothing is outside of his sovereignty, so we can trust that whatever he allows will be used for his eternal purpose. Christian author Frank Peretti, who wrote This Present Darkness and other books, says it this way. God does not waste an ounce of our pain or a drop of our tears. Suffering doesn't come our way for no reason. And he sees efficient at using what we endure to mold character. If we're malleable, he takes our bumps and bruises and shapes them into something beautiful. You see, although I often struggle with embracing the grace of suffering in my life, God's doing that to make me better, to make me a better man, to make me a better husband, to make me a better father. God takes that suffering and shapes us to something greater. And finally, suffering strips away the facade of self-righteousness to reveal the deeply rooted sin within our hearts, creating in us a greater desire for the righteousness found only in Christ. It is possible to suffer and long for heaven only for relief of pain on this earth. And while heaven is a glorious reward for those who ran hard and fought the good fight, there is an even greater desire that suffering can bring about in our lives. You see, God will pour his strength into us. Over time, he changes our desires from relief of pain alone to desiring the presence and fullness of him, which is beyond measure. Romans 5, 3 through 5 says, Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. You know, what would our community look like if Christians, if those who are followers of Jesus started bearing one another's burdens the way that Christ told us to. Not by enabling people to continue to sin, but calling them out of that sin, walking alongside of them and sharing Jesus with them. In the latter half of the 1800s, there was a small man with a huge voice who was a master of the stage. His name was Edwin Thomas. At age 15, he debuted in Richard III. And from then on, he became well-known as a premier Shakespearean actor. He performed Hamlet in New York for 100 consecutive nights. Edwin Thomas was a master of tragedy on stage. But unfortunately, his life was far too similar to his stage persona. Tragedy was his trademark. Now, Edwin had two brothers who were also actors, John and Junius. In 1863, the brothers performed Julius Caesar. The fact that Brother John portrayed the role of Brutus, Caesar's assassin, was an ironic twist that foreshadowed what would happen just two years later. You see, in 1865, John became an assassin. On a crisp April night, He stole into the rear of box at Ford's Theater and fired a bullet at the head of Abraham Lincoln. Edwin Thomas and John Wilkes were brothers who shared the last name Booth. After that night, Edwin was never the same. Shame from his brother's crime drove him to an early retirement. And he likely would have stayed retired retired forever 
If I went for a twist of fate in a New York train station, Edwin was awaiting his coach when a young, well-dressed man standing near the edge of the platform was pushed by the crowd into the path of an oncoming train. Edwin, with little thought for his own safety, kind of took his leg and wrapped it around a guardrail and reached down and grabbed that man and pulled him to safety. Amid all the sighs of relief, the young man recognized the famous Edwin Thomas. But Edwin Thomas had no clue who he was. It was only weeks later, in a letter from the chief secretary to the president, Ulysses S. Grant, that Edwin learned that he had saved the life of Robert Todd Lincoln, the child of an American hero, Abraham Lincoln. You see, Booth carried that letter in his vest pocket to his grave. Ironic, isn't it? Two brothers, same father, same upbringing, same mother, same profession. Yet one chose to kill the president and the other chose to save his son. Two criminals hung on either side of Jesus. One was like Edwin Thomas. Didn't live a perfect life. Felt shame and guilt, trapped in the suffering of their circumstances. But when the opportunity came for them to do what was right, Edwin Thomas didn't hesitate to pull that young man out. And that second criminal didn't hesitate to recognize what God had to offer him. He didn't hesitate to see the righteousness of Christ. As a matter of fact, he looks at his fellow and says, hey, he can save us, but it's not the way you're thinking of. This is God. But unfortunately, that first criminal was like John Wilkes Booth. Their hearts were full of anger and hatred and bitterness. And it's amazing that someone could be so close to Jesus and still not get it. But there may be some in this room today who are just like that. Maybe you think you're really not that bad, that you don't deserve the the punishment for the sins that you've committed. But be careful of that kind of thinking because that can make you spiritually ugly. Recognize your need for the man in the middle, the good one, Jesus. You see, he has two tickets to paradise. And he's offering that second ticket to you. He's saying, hey, will you join me today?